Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. Okay, let's read. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off of Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak round you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said, and then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They now joined together and sought an audience with him. After securing the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, this is the voice of a god, not of a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. And now I'll say a quick prayer for Matthew and the lesson. Father God, I just want to present our, our service, our worship service to you today. Um, I pray for Maffey as he's going to teach us today. He's going to bring his lesson. God, I ask that you speak through Maffey. 
Um, and I pray for everyone here that's going to be listening to the lesson. I pray that we are, um, we are encouraged, we are edified, and we are challenged by listening to your word today. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Angelina. Good afternoon, Christ City Church. We do not have the heaters on today. If anybody wants the heaters put on, do let us know. Unfortunately, we do not have air conditioning, but uh, it will not be long before we need the heaters back again. So if you can put up with the heat today, that's great. And if we can stay awake in the next 20 to 25 minutes, that also would be great. So we're, we're in week three of our, our new series called A Gospel for All. We're in the book of Acts. And you, you know, it might, it might sound straightforward that the gospel is for absolutely everybody. It might be straightforward. And we might all understand, and I think we could all agree, that the gospel covers every color, class, creed, and culture. That the gospel is for absolutely everybody. But, but the thing is, if, if this is actually true, if this good news extends to absolutely everybody on the planet, then it will not go unnoticed. It won't go unnoticed. Let's get this going. There we go. Because a gospel for all is going to invite opposition. And so this is where we're at today. We're going to be looking at some opposition. We can see from the reading uh, what, what the story was of King Herod from start to finish. And so today's passage begins with Herod ruling as king, James put to death, and Peter in prison, and, and he's soon to join James. So it seems tragic. But yet the passage ends with God ruling as king, Herod being killed, and Peter having been broken out of prison. All in the space of Acts chapter 12, it is incredible the, the, the transformation that we see. So we see the destructive power of Herod contrasted with the saving power of God. And it's an incredible reversal. And we, we get a God's eye view of this. So as we read Acts 12, as we heard Angelina reading, we, we, we see from, from God's eye view of the events that are unfolding before us. We get to see the bigger picture. We get to observe what's going on at God's vantage point. But yet for, for you and me, for many of our experiences and trials, we don't exactly get God's vantage point because we're in the midst of it. We're in the middle of it. We don't get to see the bigger picture because we're in the thick of it. We don't have the luxury of watching from afar uh, for what, what seems like a, like, a, like a tough and tragic, tragic situation. And many of us have been in these moments when it's been tough and it's been tragic and we can't look at it from afar. We don't know what's going on. All we know is, is what's in front of us. So we're going to see in Acts chapter 12 today two expectations and a promise. Two expectations and a promise. We're expected to be a persecuted church. That's not a real nice thing to say, but that's the reality. We are expected to be a persecuted church and we're expected to be a praying church. And the glorious promise is this, that we already are a victorious church. We're a victorious church. It's a promise and we're going to come to see that neither absent in our trial nor deaf to our prayer, our God is in control. Amen? Neither absent in our trial nor deaf to our prayer, our God is in control. And so as we kick off, let's, let's look at what it is to be a persecuted church. At this point in the New Testament, it's a, a little over 30 years, we've come across three different Herods. So this Herod's granddad, whenever he had heard that a king had been born in Bethlehem, he issued a decree for all Jewish boys under the age of two to be put to death. So that's this Herod's granddad issued this decree. And then this Herod's uncle actually had John the Baptist put to death. 
And so now in Acts chapter 12, it opens up with this Herod persecuting God's people. And what is the first thing he does? Here he did. He puts James, the brother of John, to death with the sword. This is one of Jesus' inner circle. This same James is the one that was with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration along with John and along with Peter. This is the same Jesus who was in the Garden of Gethsemane who Jesus had tasked to pray for him in his, in his trial. And James is put to death but doesn't say anything more about it. It's cutthroat. He's put to death, it says nothing more. And Herod's actions, if you, if you look at the, the text, Herod's actions are met with the approval of the Jews. Herod was a people pleaser. Herod was an absolute snake. And look what he does next. Look what he does next. He seizes the opportunity to imprison Peter. Why? Well, to garner more favor, more attention, more applause from the Jews. But to avoid anger in the Jews and, and, and to avoid uh, um, putting his nose on it, he, he, he decides to wait until after the Passover before putting Peter to death. He knew that if he put Peter to death during the Passover, it could be a handling. He saw what happened with Jesus. God's people, and specifically Peter, were under pressure. They're facing intense persecution. But it was nothing new for them. And for many followers of Jesus around the world today, and perhaps even in Dublin, it isn't new for them either. Do you remember what Jesus said back in John 16? In the upper room with the disciples before going to the garden. In verse 33 he says, I have told you these things so that you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. That is a promise. In this world you will have trouble. And this is another promise, but take heart, because I have overcome the world. Church, we're not, we're not surprised, we're not to be surprised whenever opposition to the gospel comes our way. In fact, it's entirely expected and it's nothing to shy away from. Jesus promises us his peace. Look at the level of detail that Luke, the writer, gives us about Peter's imprisonment. He gave us no detail at all about James being put to death, but look at the detail in the text about Peter's imprisonment. Usually a heavily guarded prisoner will have squads of two guards each. But yet everything for Peter is doubled up. Remember, in, in the book of Acts, this actually wasn't the first time that Peter was imprisoned. And it actually wasn't the first time that he'd broken out of jail. Everything was doubled up for Peter, taking no chances. And on the night before he's going to trial, on the night before his death or his likely death, what's he doing? Peter's sleeping soundly. So soundly that an angel has to strike him has to strike him in the side to wake him up. Here is someone who fears absolutely nothing. Here is Peter so deeply at peace with God's will for his life that despite his, his pending death tomorrow, he's sound asleep. The very first night that we brought Abigail home, which is like 97 nights ago, I couldn't sleep. <laughs> I literally lay, lay beside her. I've put Emma now between me and Abigail, and it's brilliant. But that first night, I, I lay there right beside her, and I had my hand over to make sure I, I would keep her alive. How on earth was I going to keep her alive? But I couldn't sleep. I had no peace. I had no peace at all. I seen every single hour. Morning came, the sun came up, and it was great. Our daughter's alive still. Often our sleep is the very first thing to go whenever trial comes. And I know that wasn't, that wasn't opposition to the gospel. That, that is Maffey just worrying. Whenever Maffey worries, what's the first thing that goes? It's asleep. Sleeplessness, restlessness, a lack of peace, worrying over outcomes. And they all reveal that we, we probably care for and love things more than we actually ought. 
Peter was sound asleep because he knew that death couldn't ultimately hurt him. That death couldn't ultimately hurt him. Friedrich Nietzsche, who was no friend of Christians, a German philosopher in the 19th century, he, he said, he who has a way to live can bear almost any how. He who has a way to live for can bear almost any how. When we've got a purpose or a reason, when we've got a why behind what we're going through, we can bear almost any how. Peter was at peace. He was sleeping soundly because he had a why. He knew that this was not the end. But better yet, he had, a, he had a who to live for. And because Peter lived for Jesus, he was able to bear up almost under any how. So I wonder, what, what do you live for? Who do you live for? Because who you live for will be revealed in times of trial. Who you live for will be revealed in times of testing. When the opposition to the gospel comes your way, when the opposition to the gospel comes your way, we, we actually find out who we really are. We actually find out where we really place our security. Many of us are, are, are really quick to consume Christianity. We're really quick to take the blessings, the good stuff that suits us really well, but, but many of us are really quick to reject the costly stuff. Reject the costly nature of following Jesus. And the reality is that many Christians fail to mature. They fail to mature because embracing the cost of the gospel in every area of their lives is just too expensive. So there's an expectation to be a persecuted church, but there is a comfort that God actually sees a persecuted church. God actually sees on the ground. It appears to be really tragic. James is killed. Peter's imprisoned. He's about to be killed. But God is not oblivious to it. God is not oblivious. The church has been persecuted, but God is not absent in their trial. In fact, God is orchestrating something, as we're going to come to see. It appears on the ground that God is absent. What's happening? We've one man of faith put to death. We're about to have Peter put to death. Where is God? God is orchestrating something. The second expectation is that we are to be a praying church. You know, God's people were facing the crisis. As we know, James is killed. Peter's about to be. So what will the church do? Look with me at verse 5. Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. This is persistent. This is unceasing prayer from the gathered believers. You know, on the, on the one hand over here, we've got the world and the church pitted one against each other, each with a weapon of choice. So on the one side, you've got the authority of Herod, you've got the power of the sword, and you've got the security of the prison. It seems powerful. That's insane. On the other side, you've got the church which turned to prayer. You have these feeble people on their hands and knees stretched out, but yet their prayer was powerful. And it's actually the only power that the powerless possess is the power of prayer. And so if Herod had got a glimpse of it, he would have laughed. It is a no contest. It is no contest, but yet their, their prayer was powerful. And so earnest prayer isn't, it, it isn't a prayer that is going to twist a reluctant God's arm. I don't know how you see God, but earnest prayer is not prayer that twists a reluctant God's arm. Rather, it's prayer that has aligned our own will with that of God's. It's a demonstration of a heart that cares for the things that God cares about. So while Herod was winning, Peter was sleeping. The church was praying but God was hearing. God was hearing. Herod had his soldiers. Herod had his prisons. Herod had his security. But the church had the power of prayer. 
The church had the power of prayer. So Peter was therefore kept in prison, but the church was free to pray. Peter was imprisoned, absolutely, but the church was free to pray. Whenever every other gate is locked, whenever every other gate is shut, the gate to heaven is wide open. And we take advantage of that church. We take advantage of that open gate through prayer. And so the expectation is that we're to be a praying church, but the confidence that we hold is this. God hears us. God absolutely hears us. J. Edgar Hoover, he was the, the, the first kind of chief executive of the FBI, said the force of prayer is greater than any possible combination of man-made or man-controlled powers because prayer is man's greatest means of tapping the infinite resources of God. Prayer is man's greatest means of tapping the infinite resources of God. While the church was praying, God was working. And look at the text. An angel of the Lord appears in his cell. And what happens? His chains fell off. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and your sandals. And, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. An angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. Peter was half asleep. He passed by the guards and they came to the iron gate leading to the city. And what happens to the iron gate? It opens by itself. In the ESV it says the gate opened of its own accord. It swung open. These aren't normal things. God moved in an extraordinary way to rescue Peter from prison. His time was not up yet. Peter's time was not up yet. God still had a plan. God still had a purpose for him that neither Herod nor the Jews could thwart. It's so extraordinary that even the praying church wasn't expecting to see Peter again. In fact, Peter then, well, what's he going to do? The angel disappears. He's out in the street. He is free. So he goes to one of the houses where the believers were gathered in prayer and rode at one of the servants. Whenever she saw Peter, she didn't even open the door. She couldn't believe her eyes. The others thought that she was out of her mind. They thought that maybe she'd saw his angel. Isn't it familiar to us? That whenever we're so often amazed at how God answers our prayer in ways we did not expect, in ways we didn't anticipate. And so it was here. The believers were praying. They wanted God to move. And then God moves in a, in a way that, they, that they'd wanted, but whenever they saw the fruit of it, they didn't believe it. We're to pray with the confidence that God is able to do exceedingly abundantly more than all we ask or imagine. Do you believe that? God is able to do more than all we exceedingly ask for. So persecution is to be expected because we're living in such a way that proclaiming the gospel is for absolutely all people. And yet earnest prayer is also to be expected as we hold on to the confidence that God not only sees what's going on, but he hears his people. But you know, church, God does not lay expectations upon his people without the assurance that he is with them and he has got them. Whether you're going into your workplace, maybe you're going back to a difficult family, maybe you're going back to a diff difficult living situation. That I, I don't know what it is. I don't know what the trial is. I don't know what the difficulty is in your life. But maybe you're, you're stepping out of church and you're going back to something. I want to tell you, God sees and God hears and God does not lay any expectations upon you without the assurance that he is with you. He has got you. And this is a promise for the early church, and it's a promise for you and me today. 
So a persecuted church, but God sees, a praying church, and God hears, and a victorious church. You know, the passage begins with Herod ruling, with James being killed and Peter imprisoned. But then in a short space of time, it closes with God ruling, Herod being killed and Peter released. And so whenever the next morning comes along, Herod finds that Peter has escaped. He absolutely blows a fuse. So what does he do? He sentences the guards to the very same the very same sentence that he was going to sentence Peter to. That was the punishment. If the prisoner escapes, you get what the prisoner was due. Herod moves then to another region shortly afterwards. He uh, says that he's been arguing with these people from Tyre and Sidon. I've no idea what he's arguing about, but he's been arguing with them. But now these people at Tyre and Sidon were at his mercy and they were needing food supplies. And so as the people pleaser and as a snake that he is, he steps up to the plate. And his response is, and their response is this, that this is the voice of a God, not of a man. And you can imagine Herod is loving this. He loved the affection from the Jews. He loved the applause from the Jews. Now you've got the people of Tyre and Sidon that are giving him the very same thing. They're speaking to his heart. They're, they're giving him what he wants. And instantly, because Herod did not give praise to God, God struck him down there and then. You know, the, the, the first century historian, Flavius Josephus, records this event in his Annals of History. This is recorded in history. And he notes that Herod did neither rebuke them nor reject their impious flattery. This is in the history books. This is what Josephus said. In the space of a few days, an angel struck Peter, and Peter was aroused to life. And in the space of a few days, an angel struck Herod, and he was killed. Ultimately, Herod tried to crush the truth. And church, many have gone before us, many have gone before Herod, and many have gone after Herod have done the same. But yet the word of God prevails, and God's church continues to march forward. In the face of opposition, the word of God continued to spread and flourish. Very small verse in verse 24. You'd nearly miss it in the... In the face of opposition, the word of God continued to spread and flourish. So why was that? Well, Herod's political might was up against a small group of Christians who were earnestly praying. But yet God demonstrates that he is God and he is in control. God's in control. You know, Jesus had already encouraged the disciples to take heart because he has overcome the world. Ultimately, the battle rages on, but the victory has been secured. So through Jesus' death and resurrection, he has defeated sin, he has defeated the grave. He has ascended back to the Father, and what has he done? He has prepared a place for those who love and follow him. We're going to read a verse shortly that says that Jesus is interceding for us at the, at the side of the Father. And so Acts 12 is a picture that says that if the gospel is for all, then it's going to invite opposition. But when that comes, we can stand firm, knowing that neither absent in our trial nor deaf to our prayer, our God is in control. And so what are some of the implications then for you and I this week? What are some of the implications for us this week? I want us to go back through this passage again. We have freedom. Herod thought he was in control. 
Peter knew God was in control. Herod was swayed by the applause and the praise of people. Peter slept in peace. Who was really free here? Who was really free? It was Peter. Peter might have been bound by chains at the rest, but Peter was free. Who was really enslaved? Herod may have been the king, but he was enslaved to the applause and the praise of others. Peter was bound by chains, but he had a deep freedom in Christ. Peter could sleep because he knew Christ was victorious. Herod, though he was free, was really enslaved by the power and the popularity that came his way. He was enslaved by the need to be in control. As understanding that ultimately God is in control will mean that he is never absent in our trial, even when it seems like he's silent. As our greatest freedom is not like Herod in seeking power or seeking control, seeking to control scenarios and situations, but rather it's in giving it away. Peter had learned that his greatest freedom is found in being hidden with Christ. And Peter can rest well. And you and I can rest well whenever we have this freedom, this deep satisfaction that we are in Christ. And when persecution comes our way, that's okay. Because we care more for what Christ thinks about us, what he says about us, what he speaks over us, than what the lies of the enemy, the devil, maybe even what our peers say about us. And I wonder, what is running the risk of stealing your freedom? What's running the risk of stealing your joy this week? So we have freedom when facing persecution. Another implication is weakness in prayer. You know, it would be foolish for me to come and say to you, church, we need to be strong in prayer. We need to be the strongest prayer warriors there is because uh, the, the devil is prowling around like a lion. You know what, I, I could say it, I could lay a burden on you to say we need to pray more, we need to pray harder. You know, when Peter appeared at the door, no one would believe it. They'd been praying earnestly, but their actions showed a, a lack of faith. And that's, that's quite like us. They couldn't believe the things they were praying for. And this is good news for us because God is not limited by your weakness. God is not limited by my weakness. So when, even when our, when our actions display unbelief, God is still God and God is still in control. We don't need to have it all together for God to move and act in history. To see prayer answered, to see the hand of God move in both the extraordinary and ordinary ways, we do not need to have it all together. And this should be good news for you and me. God's glory is displayed all the more beautifully in our weakness, not our strength. God is most glorified when we are most dependent upon him. And so maybe you need to hear this today. Maybe you need to hear this. God's delays are not God's denials. Perhaps you've been earnest in prayer and you're not seeing the fruit. It is very possible that God is delaying and God's not denying. You know, Peter could have been rescued earlier. Peter could have been rescued far earlier, but God in his sovereign ways chose to wait until the 11th hour. I reckon after the service, if you asked the people you're, you're hanging around with and having tea and coffee with, have you ever seen God wait to move until the 11th hour? Many of us could say, yeah, absolutely. That was so tough. And then when, when we're asked, would you prefer him to have, to have moved earlier? I think looking back, we would say, no, you know, you know what, it fostered a dependence. I was so dependent, I was so reliant on the Lord, I needed him to come through, and he did. You know, God often allows trials in our lives to increase our dependence upon him, to allow us to draw close to him. And finally, if, if God is in control, with freedom, 
We can be weak in prayer. We are more than conquerors. We are more than conquerors. We are a victorious church and a victorious people. Not because we're great. Not because we've got like 100 people in the room. Not because we're meeting in the secondary school. Not because of our gifts and talents. But because we are in Christ. Ultimately, like Peter, nothing can harm us. And in the end, we will be vindicated. You know, if God is in control, then we are set free internally. We're set free from slavery to control. We're set free from slavery to power. We're set free from slavery to applause. We're set free from the need to get victory at this side of eternity. Did you notice at the very start the two different outcomes? The two different outcomes for James and Peter. This is a tough question. James gets killed and Peter gets freed. It's a very real question in our lives. Why does God allow this to happen to one person? Why does God bring freedom to the next? We've got to trust, church, that God is sovereign. And that even whenever, even whenever we struggle to make sense of it, God is sovereign. You know, Hebrews 11 records some of the heroes of the faith and, and the writer says, some faced jeers, some faced flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. Some were sawed in two. They were killed by the sword. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised, since God had planned something better. You know, James is commended for his faith. James died a martyr. James is rejoicing with Jesus. Peter would go on to die a martyr, but his time was not up at this point in time. With eternity in mind, we have an assurance of victory. And that victory may not materialize in the here and now. We may not live physically victorious lives. For some of us, it may be disability. For others of us, we may simply just not have the capacity to do what we once wanted to do or to go as far as we once wanted to go. We may well live in, in, in a sense of disappointment. We, we may not live to achieve all of our dreams and hopes and ambitions. You know, in our teens and our 20s, we're quite idealistic and, and we think we're going to change the world and maybe by our 40s, 50s, 60s, we realize that that's not the case and that life may well have dealt us a, a hard hand. Victory may not come in this lifetime, but for you who are in Jesus, we can be assured that victory is coming. Will you stand with me as I read the last few verses of Romans 8? I want us to respond together in song. But, uh, and if you can't see it, then step out onto the aisle if you need to. If you're as short as me at the back, you'll not be able to see this. So I want to read it out. I want to read Romans 8, 34 to 39. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Wow. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword because as it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. In fact, we're, we're, we're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, not at all. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors 
through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. 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 Mm-hmm.